So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 33. This is now, we actually ended last week the song uh, that God taught Israel, and it was a song that would be their, their judgment when they would go astray. Now the flip side this week, we're going to get the blessing. So there's judgment, there's blessing. There's, there's judgment, but then after judgment, there's promise of blessing. And that's a pattern you see all throughout the Old Testament. So, <clears throat> chapter 32 ended, it said, verse 48, this is after the song, On that same day the Lord told Moses, Go up into the Abarim range on Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I'm giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you'll die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I'm giving the people of Israel. Now this is a constant reminder. It needs to be emphasized. Back in Exodus and in Numbers in particular, Moses rebelled. We need to keep that in mind. It was in a moment of frustration, but he rebelled against God. He rebelled against the suzerain. And though he wasn't wiped out, though it was a momentary lapse, it was still a severe lapse. And it was acting against the great king. And so there were repercussions because of that. And, and, and Jewish tradition has wrestled for centuries, millennia, with why didn't Moses at least get to go into the land after spending 40 years leading these people. And there are different answers. Check the commentaries, check the theology books that, that wrestle with the issue. But one of the things to keep in mind is that, what did Spider-Man say? With great power comes great responsibility. Actually, I was Uncle Ben said that to Spider-Man. So it's like that with Moses. The higher you are in authority, the more severe the judgment will be. Jesus' brother said this, James chapter 3, verse 1, My brothers, not all of you should be teachers. Those of us who teach will be held to a higher standard. So who was closer to God than Moses? No one since Abraham. So Moses' failure had a much higher price tag penalty than anybody else's. And we may go, well, that's not fair. You know, he should have gotten, you know, God should have let it slide because they were so close. No, well, no, that's, that's the whole point of it. The closer you are, the more severe judgment will be when you rebel. And so that should be a warning to anybody in any position of authority. Um, and it's something that we don't need to gloss over or push aside. However, it's not Moses' legacy. His legacy is secured. And I'll show you at the end of this chapter, I'll read you a beautiful paragraph by Chris Wright that actually picks up on that concept of not entering the land. But Moses then, as he's looking over the land, and I've actually been on Mount Nebo. I was there this spring. It's amazing. You can see all the way to Galilee in the north. You can see all the, I mean, all the way up. And then you pan down into Judea, straight across. There's Jericho, Jerusalem back there over the mountains. Right down here is the Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley. Right down here is Edom, Moab. There you're in and Edom and Ammon. It's incredible. You, the, Mount Nebo, and it's not a short mountain. This isn't like Grandfather Mountain, you know, or, or, or Crowder's Mountain around here. It's, it's a hike. And Moses did it, and he did it when he was 120. And this is the last thing he did. And, the, and, and he was still able physically to do it. But his time had drawn near. So, <clears throat> before he dies, any patriarch, before they die, what do they do? Remember those of you who were with us in Genesis? What do the patriarchs do before they die? They gather the sons, they pronounce a blessing. Now, Moses is not the father. Moses is a member of one of the tribes. He's a Levite. But he has become the father of this nation. 
So like any good father in the ancient Near East, he is going to gather his people, his sons, the sons of Israel, and he's going to pronounce a blessing over them. And blessings are not just, oh, may everything be awesome for you. No, blessings are prophetic insight into the future of your destiny. And they have weight to them in the ancient world. There's, there's a seriousness to them. They can't be revoked. They can't be swapped. They can't be altered after they're pronounced. You know, we talked about all of this back in Genesis. There is a gravitas to them that we today don't really understand or appreciate. But in the ancient world, they very much did. Israelite or non-Israelite. This was just part of ancient culture. A father, patriarch's dying blessing was your destiny. Like it or not. So, this is what Moses is going to speak over all the tribes. He's going to start off, again, everything he's done, the whole book of Deuteronomy, we've said all year. You're tired of me saying this. It is patterned after an ancient Near East Hittite suzerainty vassal treaty covenant. So even the ending, even this blessing is going to have elements of the suzerain king, Yahweh, the vassal, Israel, his servants. That's what's in all of this. So it begins like any ancient Near East vassal treaty would with announcing the identity of the suzerain and who he is. So this is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. So this is announcing the great king. And the imagery, Mount Sinai, way down in Midian, modern northwest Saudi Arabia, uh, that's where uh, God appeared. That was the burning bush. That's where he appeared. That's where Israel gathered. That's all of Exodus. Then they moved. As they moved north, they moved through Mount Seir. Mount Paran, those are places in Edom and Moab, those are places we looked at in Numbers. And all along they were moving north into what was going to be the promised land. So the image of the announcement of this king is a, 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 a conquering king with his myriad of holy ones, with his heavenly host. That's what that word means. It means angelic army. And the images of this mighty king coming forth from the south into the land with Myriads. Myriad is a word that means like tens of thousands. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have a higher numeric number than thousand. So after thousand, you've just got like bunches of thousands. And so myriads. But that's what the image of this, song, this blessing begins is Yahweh, this army, the head of the army. Remember, he's the king, he's the suzerain, he's the general, he's the one who's leading the, the warriors. And that's what Israel is. So coming forth together is the image of, of him coming from these mountain stops along the way. It's a military conquest image. It says, Surely it's you who love the people. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet they all bow down. From you receive instruction. The Torah, wisdom, teaching. The law that Moses gave us. The possession of the assembly of Jacob. He was king over Yeshurun when the leaders of the people assembled along with the tribes of Israel. Now the he, verse 5, he was king over Yeshurun. Last week we mentioned it. Yeshurun is another name for Israel. It means upright one. It's a nickname for Israel. Last week in the curse song it was used ironically, like in condemnation, like yeah, upright Israel. But this time it's being used for real. He is the king of, of Yeshurun, of, of the upright ones. The he in question, who is it? Well, it's, it's God. God is the king. God is the sovereign. This is what kings did in the ancient Near East. A suzerain became a suzerain by doing three things. Uh, he defeated enemies, he provided security, and he gave good laws. That's what the ancient Near East kings did. You defeat the people's enemies, you provide their security, and you give them good laws. You are a good king. Hammurabi, 
all the kings of Egypt, all the Hittite kings, they all, the Babylonian kings, that's what kings did. And so right here at the outset, God is being cemented as the king of kings, riding with myriads of his heavenly hosts, giving the law, providing security to Israel, doing all the things that all these other little kings would, would scramble after to do. Yahweh's the one who's doing it for Israel. So now, verse 6. He's, <coughs> excuse me. By the way, if you're listening, I've got a cold that I can't shake, so bear with the coughing. He, now he's going to pronounce blessings on the tribes. This section, like the last section, is poetic, and in Hebrew poetry, the text is not always certain. So depending on what translation you read, you're going to read different things. Now, different to the point where they teach opposite things? No, not necessarily. But there will be, there's footnotes in your Bibles for a reason. And the reason is some of these passages, the text can read two different ways. You've seen that in here over the years. Well, in this case, there's some legitimate questions about a couple of these blessings. So for instance, verse 6, the first blessing. Who's the firstborn of Israel? Reuben. Reuben's the firstborn son. Let Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Now NIV says, nor his men be few. Meaning this is a blessing of numeric prosperity. But there should be a footnote. There's not in the IV. In other translations, there's a footnote because the Septuagint and other translations say, but let his men be few. Other, or, or something like that. You know, let his men be small in number. So there's a legit question on this blessing. Is this an unconditional blessing to Reuben? Or is this, let him live, but he's not going to be head of the clans? Well, you think back to the blessing that Jacob gave and you remember Reuben and his personality and his transgressions and the Reubenites as a whole were, were, were blessed but they lost their status as the firstborn in terms of their inheritance. They aren't ahead of the Israel's army that goes to Judah. They aren't the priests that goes to Levi. So, so Reuben had a checkered past as a tribe and in, <coughs> in this case the blessing Either NIV opts for, you know, let nor, let nor his men be few, but other translations will read, but let his men be few. So it could be a conditional blessing. You're going to live, but you're no longer the head of this thing. So take that as you will. Look, look at the commentaries if you want to know which preference, which translation is preferable. But we don't have time to get into all that. He moves on, verse 7. In this he said about Judah. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah. Bring him to his people. With his own hands, he defends his cause. Oh, be his help against his foes. That phrase, oh, be his help against his foes. I'm going to point this out. That word help is the word azer. E-Z-E-R. Azer. Azer is only used of God. And it does not mean help like, hey, hand me this bottle. Thank you. Hey, can you sweep that up for me? Thank you. No. Azer means deliverance. Your Azer is your deliverer. And God is Israel's only deliverer. It means to rescue from death. From a state of, of, of unconquerable un, um, opposition. Something like that. Why am I harping on this? Well, one, God is the deliverer of Israel. He is the Azer. Here I raise my Ebenezer. You ever heard that hymn? Ebenezer, stone of deliverance. Rock of remembrance, of deliverance. It's a monument to being delivered. That's what God is. He's the deliverer. Why do I harp on that also? Because way back in Genesis, and almost none of you were here except for a few faithful over here, way back in Genesis, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. 
I will provide a azer for him. Helper, not help meet, deliverer. Eve, when, when the man is created, the woman is created, is the only other person in Scripture other than Yahweh who's ever called Azer, deliverer. So go back to Genesis if you're interested in that. Uh, but it has a rich theological significance for the whole notion of womanhood and who women are and the role and man, female, and all of that stuff is, is again, it's a sermon for another time, but it's, I want to point it out because this word, every time it's used, it's referred to God except for that one time in Genesis where it's referred to you ladies. So keep it in mind, but we're going to move on. Uh, about Levi, he said, your Thummim and Urim belong to the man you favored. Thummim and Urim are the two implements that God's high priests would use to discern God's will. We don't know if they were dice. We don't know if they were like drawing straws. We don't know what they were. The words literally mean lights and perfections. We have no idea what they were. And anybody that says they know what they were is lying to you. We can guess. We can conjecture. But at the end of the day, they're just these stones or, or things that people use, the high priest, to determine the will of God in extremely difficult circumstances. That's all we know. But, let the, uh, your Urim, Thummim and Urim belong to the man you favored. You tested him at Massa. You contended with him at the waters of Meribah. These are word plays on both of those. Massa means testing, Meribah means contention. He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but watched over your word and guarded your covenant. What's that talking about? That seems like a bad thing. Not having regard for your family, not even for your mother. No, this is a specific incident. This is Exodus 32 and Numbers 25, where the people rebelled against God, open rebellion, golden calf, the incident of Balaam, and they openly rebelled against Torah, against God's commandments, and were unrepentant when they were rebuked about it. So what happened? The Levites were the tribe who strapped on their swords, went into the camps of the, unbelie- the, the rebellious people, and struck them down. There's two incidents that happened. And God said, because of that, you will always be the tribe that upholds my law, that teaches and disciplines and rebukes and guides the other tribes. Because they were the tribe that was zealous for God's law. Remember guys like Phineas and that whole incident. So you missed it again that's why it's all online you can go catch up with that but because of that verse 10 he teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel he offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar so this is the, the role of the Levites they are the instructors they are the disciplinarians of Israel in terms of teaching God's law they don't get any land they don't get the inheritance that the other tribes get but in this blessing they get the longest section it shows you how intent Moses was on the law, that it be preserved into the future. And my favorite curse in all of the Bible comes up next. Bless all his skills, O Lord, and be pleased with the work of his hands. Smite the loins of those who rise up against him. Strike his foes till they rise no more. I just love the phrase, smite the loins of those who rise up against them. Because it means like kick them in the gut or slightly south. Uh, it's just, a, that's a, I wrote in my Bible, haha, that's a funny sounding curse. May God smite your loins. But, verse 12, about Benjamin, he said, Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields... They translate that phrase, rest between his shoulders, as rests between his weapons. Because the word for shoulder, is shoulder blade actually, and it's also metaphorically a word for weapons. And so the other scholars who have looked at this have said, this is actually 
saying God rests between the weapons of Benjamin. Benjamin is going to be one of the most warring, uh, mighty tribes of all the tribes. Benjamin is going to be a militarily victorious tribe in Israel's future. You know, King Saul was the first Benjaminite. He was a mighty warrior. Benjamin would go into battle. There's a lot of Benjamin and war are kind of you know, linked together later in the Old Testament. So this could be a promise or a blessing or a speaking of that into being. We don't know. It's, it's, again, songs and poetry are sometimes vague. And only in hindsight do we see what they might have referred to. But in this case, it's a blessing. And it's a blessing of security and might to Benjamin. Now, about Joseph, he said, and Joseph is the tribe that had two half-tribes. So Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They were the ones that became the tribes, but they collectively are referred to as Joseph. About Joseph, he said, May the Lord bless his land with precious dew from heaven above and with the deep waters that lie below, with the best the sun brings forth and the finest the moon can yield. Or that could read the finest the months could yield. It could refer to just agricultural calendar because the moon doesn't really yield anything. With choicest gifts of the ancient mountains and fruitfulness of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the burning bush, let these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers, or, or one set apart from his brothers. That word is Nazir. That's where we get Nazarite from. Joseph was set apart from his brothers. How? When they sold him into slavery. He was set apart physically. Um, but because of that, he was elevated into the status almost of a prince in Egypt, second to Pharaoh. So, uh, in majesty, he's like a firstborn bull. His horns are the horns of a wild ox. Those are military strength images. With them, he will gore the nations, even those at the ends of the earth. Such are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and that's the word myriads. Such are the thousands of Manasseh. So, this again, between Benjamin and Joseph. Remember, Benjamin and Joseph back in Genesis, they were kind of peas in a pod, right? They were, they were buddies. Benjamin loved Joseph. Joseph loved Benjamin. He was the favored one. So these blessings to Benjamin and Joseph's sons are <coughs> blessings of abundance, of military might, of provision. And specifically in these phrases, look at the phrases that are used. Dew from heaven above, deep waters, sun, moon, ancient mountains, everlasting hills, earth in its fullness. These are all the things that the Canaanite fertility gods promised to deliver. That's who you went to Asherah or Baal or Chemosh or Moloch or any of these other gods to try to secure the blessings of the highest heavens, the blessings of the everlasting mountains, the produce of the fields. And God here is saying, no, God is the one, Yahweh is the one who provides all of these. Also interestingly in verse 16, the favor of him who dwelt in the burning bush, that is the only mention of the burning bush outside of the Exodus chapter in which the burning bush happens. Nowhere else in the Bible is that word used. So, interesting trivia. We'll tuck it away. Bring it out at a cocktail party. Whatever. Verse 18, about Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and you, Issachar, in your tents. So Zebulun and Issachar are getting a double blessing together. They will summon peoples to the mountains and there offer sacrifices of righteousness. They will, and NIV says feast on, literally the Hebrew says they will suck out the abundance of the seas on the treasures hidden in the sand. So Zebulun and Issachar are both associated with water because they were near either Lake Kinnereth, which is the Sea of Galilee, or the shoreline in, in their territories. And so this is images of like abundance and harvesting of the seas and people sacrificing the, there in sacrifice of righteousness. So it's again, it's a blessing. It's a, it's a good one. You 
You want to be Issachar and Zebulun in that case, especially if you like seafood. Verse 20, about Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad's domain. Gad lives there like a lion, tearing at arm and scalp. He chose the best land for himself. The leader's portion was kept for him. When the heads of the people assembled, he carried out the Lord's righteous will and his judgments concerning Israel. Gad's likened to a lion who tears at the prey, just as a lion will just you know, rip apart his prey. Gad, his might, his military might is spoken of that way, and also his righteousness and abundance. So this is, again, a strong blessing. You want to be Gad. About Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub springing out of Bashan. That's it. Um, about Naphtali, he said, Naphtali is abounding with the favor of the Lord and is full of his blessing. He will inherit southward to the lake or to the sea. So Naphtali, again, Dan and Naphtali kind of get a, eh, it's a blessing, but not really much is said. And then about Asher. Asher literally means happy. Most blessed, son is, uh, most blessed of sons is Asher. That word blessed is Asher. So blessed, happy, most Asher of sons is Asher. Is how you could read it. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him bathe his feet in oil. Uh, that sounds gross to us, but olive oil is significant in Israel. It's their main economy staple. And so bathing your feet in oil means you're stomping a lot of oil. You're pressing a lot of oil. You're, you're doing well agriculturally. The bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze and your strength will equal your days. That's a good blessing. You're secure. You're strong. You've got your oil. Again, you want to be Asher, you will indeed be happy. So then he goes on to wrap it up, getting back to God. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds in His majesty. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you saying, destroy him. So Israel will live in safety alone. Jacob's spring is secure in a land of grain and new wine where the heaven drops dew. Blessed are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. Saved. Yasha. That's where we get the word Yeshua or Joshua. It means saved. The image, we've talked about this before. All of our image in the New Testament of getting saved, especially if you're a good Baptist, you've been saved, brother. That comes from the actual salvation of Israel from Egypt. God first saved them. Then they were His covenant people and He gave them the law and then they live out that salvation. They did not earn their salvation. They live it out. He is your shield and your helper. There it is again. Your Azer, your deliverer, and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will trample down their high places. So this, in contrast to last week's curse song, this is a song of blessing. This is what awaits the people as they're going into the land. And if they remain faithful to Yahweh, then the covenant curses will not come upon them. But instead, this will be what they can look forward to if they remain faithful, which we know from hindsight they do not. But Moses is speaking this as he's sending his people into this land. And when you're looking on Mount Nebo, so I'll paint the picture for you. I'm standing here on Mount Nebo. I see all the way to the north up the Galilee, south to the Dead Sea. Before me is the land, and it literally, there's a valley, and then it rises up into these formidable hill country. And it's mountainous, and it's intimidating. And Israel is about to go into that land, and the tribes are going to disperse to the south, to the north, to the sea. <laughs> so they're going to need the blessing of Yahweh. They're going to need the provision. They're going to need the abundance. They're going to need the security and the military might because remember, that land's not empty. 
There are people groups in that land who God is specifically sending Israel to drive out. Those are the Canaanites. Because the time has come. The sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure, according to Genesis 15. And the time has come for Israel now to be the sword that drives out the enemies of God. Later, God's going to do that exact same thing with Assyria and Babylon when Israel turns against Him. They will be the sword that drives Israel out of the land. So it's this whole unfolding history and theology of the land and what's going on, but we're at the cusp of it. And Moses is giving them one final blessing before they step into the land. Now, what do we do with these blessings? How do we appropriate this? Because I'm not from the tribe of Dan or Naphtali. I don't, you know, what, what do I care how God blesses them? I want to read, this is from Daniel Block, his commentary on Deuteronomy. I'm going to end with this. He talks about these promises and what relevance they have for us. He says, Even as we find our security in Christ and recognize that God assumes responsibility for our well-being, we're cautioned against the abuse of texts like this by claiming them as unconditional promises of material prosperity. When the New Testament church was established, the covenant community became an international community, which meant that God's reputation and the advance of the gospel were no longer tied to one state or one people. This text's promises of material well-being have been transformed. A transnational, global Christianity may not claim these promises of dipping feet in oil and other idioms of agricultural prosperity as literal and unconditional foundations for the health and wealth gospel peddled by so many today and exported around the world, particularly in places of desperate poverty. One of America's most popular preachers declares that by his death, Jesus Christ frees us from our bad habits and addictions, fear and worry, discouragement and depression, poverty and lack and low self-esteem. As if these freedoms were unconditional entitlements. But they never have been. Not even for the ancient Israelites. True well-being and security are found in Jesus Christ, through whose death and resurrection a personal relationship with God is secured. This does not mean that we are immune from disaster but that when disaster strikes, our well-being is ensured. The Gospel calls us to take up the cross and suffer for the cause of Christ. Making material prosperity and physical health our passion is idolatry, a modern version of Canaanite fertility religion. Nevertheless, in Christ we do find glorious reassurance that God is as interested in the genuine well-being of His people as we are. Just as He fulfilled His word in delivering the promised land into the Israelites' hands, so He fulfills His Word in granting us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1. The life of faith is indeed lived out in the everyday struggles of life. God does not promise to solve every problem, but He does promise to be there in those struggles. I love that way that He points it out is even in these blessings, because you've all heard well-meaning people. You know, you're going through a tough time. They pull a blessing out of the Old Testament and read it over you. They may even speak it as a prophetic word. It's a blessing to Israel. God may want to do for you some of the things that He did for Israel, but it's not an unconditional promise. And so when we're reading this section, the blessings of Israel, I love that Block noted, he said, look, this wasn't even unconditional for Israel, much less for us today. It was depending on Israel remaining united in faith with their covenant king. No covenant faithfulness, no covenant blessings. How much more than today does that apply to us and our covenant faithfulness to the King of Kings now that we have a face to go with it, which is the face of Jesus? 
So as we read this section and other blessings, that's just something to keep in mind, especially in the Old Testament. Um, Next week, we're going to look at the very final chapter. It's a short one. We're going to recap the book, and we're going to see what we're getting ready to do in the coming year when we move into Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So you guys have a great week. And again, either in this room or the other room, we'll see you next week. Bye.